He is holy. Take your Bibles with me and you can turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2 this morning. We'll go ahead and read our text. Verse 12 is a little bit of a transition from last week. Flowing into not only this story of Christ building a whip and cleansing the temple. But also looking at his statement about that temple and how it relates to him. So let's look together. John chapter 2 verse 12. We'll read through the end. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this sanctuary, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered what he said, that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Father, we come this morning... Still early in this great gospel, your revelation as your spirit inspired the Apostle John to communicate. And yet we have seen so much truth about who Christ is, fully God, fully man. We've seen his ministry begin. We've seen the first miraculous event and even what it represents of this new covenant, this new administration that is being announced and coming through the Son. There is a new day dawning as we see Christ come. The King is here. But yet we understand they, even those close to Him, begin to believe yet don't have a full grasp of all that we understand as New Testament believers. But help us see even the lessons we can learn as we look back at this moment and what John wants us to understand in light of his claim that Jesus is the Son of God. We just pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, John's purpose, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, is to present to you the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Of God, That's what he wants to accomplish. And he does so throughout the gospel with different miracles or different signs. And so I find it fascinating that early on, here's a group asking for a sign. 
and he doesn't give it, or at least immediately give it. There's reasons for that in his ministry. This is the beginning of his ministry, not the end of his ministry. And so he's not ready to reveal everything. He's got things to do, things to accomplish. He's got the disciples to train and to teach. But also they're demonstrating, as we'll see, the wrong kind of heart. By heart, I simply mean the control center, kind of in a Jewish sense that the heart, the mind, they demonstrate a heart of worship that is misplaced, that is wrong. I think this falls in line if you think of Old Testament stories. And if you aren't familiar, I encourage you maybe later you can read through. But if you go to Leviticus chapter 10 and you see the the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and they offer strange fire. And you go, what's so wrong with that? We don't have time to preach that sermon, but they are casual. It doesn't seem like it's this big of a deal. If you look at the kind of context, they're, they're just doing these things and misusing the temple. And yet... You go, okay, well, I can see the severity of judgment to come. But if you go to that story, the judgment is going to be that Nahab and Abihu are struck dead. It's a pretty serious consequence. We're all sinners. Why strike Nadab and Abihu? Or another story, I think in a similar vein to this cleansing of the temple. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and you see Uzzah and David's parading He's bringing the ark to Jerusalem. All in context, you might go, well, isn't this what is supposed to happen? But yet he does so in a way that's in violation of the clear commands of scripture. And Uzzah reaches out when that cart, which is never meant to be carried on a cart by oxen. In fact, that's kind of interesting. The only time you ever find the ark on a, uh, on a cart driven by oxen is earlier when the Philistines do it. The Jews were not meant to. It was very clear instruction of how to carry that ark, but they're supposed to carry it with poles and in a specific way. And Uzzah, who I think knew better, reaches out to grab the ark and is struck dead. Or another New Testament example, go to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. And they lie to the Holy Spirit. They say that they gave all and they had not given all. And they are struck dead. And in many of those cases, it seems a severe punishment. And you might look at the text this morning and go, Jesus taking a whip. Flipping over the tables is severe. But the consistent theme is that when it comes to treating worship casually, the response is severe. And I'm not talking casually in the sense that this morning when you gather for church and we understand this is the worship, we're worshiping the Lord together as his church. I'm not talking about the way you dress. I'm not talking whether you can bring coffee in or not. Not saying whether it's cheap folding chairs or really nice chairs. No, I'm talking about the nature of worship, the way we view God, the way we view this moment that is the internal, the heart. Are we approaching it with the right worshipful attitude? Jesus is going to say and establish in his ministry, there is a right way to approach worship. There's a right way to approach worship. You could say, in this case, the temple, the worship of God. But of course, as we understand as New Testament, Christ even here is going to say the sanctuary, his body as we approach him and as we approach the gathering even this morning. So there's tons of implications. But this broader section we saw last week includes not only the wedding at Cana, the cleansing of the temple. We're going to see, I think this flows beautifully and naturally into all of the rebirth, the regeneration, a new heart of chapter 3. I don't think it's any accident that you have verse 23, 24, 25 that kind of even there function as a transition to 
this question that Nicodemus is going to ask, but also the living water offered to the Samaritan woman at the well and the healing of the royal official's son. And so in all these, what do they have in common? Yes, they point to the deity of Christ, but they also point to his ministry is new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that the old has gone and the new has come. And I think this story is very foundational to all the other signs. And there's some debate over, not that John is about signs and miracles. It's just a debate whether which ones are the major ones. Is this one? And where I'm convinced is it is one. Maybe if it's not one in the way in which he is able to cleanse the temple with authority and they allow him to do it. If not there, it is definitely what sign is going to be the pointing to his ultimate miracle, which is going to be his resurrection. That's ultimately what they're going to have to look to. And it's going to reorient all the way that not only Israel, but the whole world comes to God and worships. That idea of reorientation, simply the action of changing the focus or the direction of something. And I, I want this text this morning to reorient us. And if it's maybe not reorient, you've got it right, then, then don't reorient in the sense of you're already there. But Jesus is going to take something so common to the Jew, that is the Passover. Everyone is going to do it. They're going to go up. They're going to the Passover. They're going to offer sacrifices. And he's going to jar them into realizing that they've become too casual, treated this too common, and then make them really reevaluate the way they view worship. You might have come this morning with different expectations to learn something, to get some advice, to live a better life. You might have come just out of habit. You get up. It's what your family's done. It's what your grandparents did. It's what the culture would expect of someone who claims to be a Christian. But those are obviously very, very secondary. Even learning is secondary to the main priority of worshiping the Lord. And obviously worship can come through service to the Lord as well. But I really want you to see the warnings of Christ in this passage, the dangers of letting worship become common. And so we're gonna see Jesus reorient the nature of worship by demonstrating the need for a heart that does not look for just signs or look for more signs as they're gonna look for more than the authority to cleanse out the temple. I think you can kind of establish here, it's this idea of looking for more because he's going to give signs. Jesus has given some signs. I think the fact of what he does here, they could even go and ask, did he do something that was good and right? Did the temple need cleanse? But they don't ask it that way. They, they want another or they want more signs. And so I want you to see how Jesus reorients the nature of worship by demonstrating that we need a heart that does not just look for more Science, but believes by faith the things that we know are true. The things that we know are true because it's going to end with just like the wedding at Canaan, verse 11, his disciples believed him. And in verse 23 of kind of this smaller section, many believed in his name. And of course, we'll look at that nature of belief because this is the beginning. And Christ knows the heart of men and its ability to turn worship into idolatry or turn worship into something that it was never intended to do. Look at verse 12 with me and we're going to see kind of the way I've outlined it, three different ways that Jesus orients worship. 
And the first way is he points out, which we've seen over and over throughout the Old Testament. This is not new. This is a kind of like the Sermon on the Mount. He's going back and saying, you guys have missed the point. As I said, Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah. We've seen Israel treat worship common without the respect that it deserves and come to disastrous ends. They started to view worship as a means, a cultural means, something that you just do and you don't think much about, a habit. But it's not a means. Worship is the end. So it's kind of how I look here at verses 12 through 17, that worship is not a means, but an end. That is to say, you're not here simply as a means to get something, but this is the end. And you'll find a lot more contentment in church if you're here to worship the Lord and that's your goal And that should not be as we preach the word and we sing together and we fellowship together, that should not be hard to hit that goal. If you're looking for massive wisdom from me to fix all problems, you won't find that. But if you're looking at me to point to Christ who ultimately meets all needs, then you will find that as we look to him, especially here as we see in the gospel of John. So look at verse 12 with me. There's a context here of gathering. This is a yearly gathering. This is Passover time. Everyone is meant to go up to Jerusalem. In this case, they're going down. If you look at the map and why does it say up? Because graphically or geographically speaking, they go up to Jerusalem. So if you've been in Israel before, and I will kind of mention this now because we'll see it throughout the gospels, uh, it's elevation is higher. So you're marching up as it were, kind of if you're getting to Colorado, right? You're going up in elevation. That's true as you come south, you're going up to Jerusalem because it's higher elevation. And so it's near and that's what they're going to do. And there it simply says what he found in the temple were those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now I imagine this scene would be common. We don't quite know how long, what's the progression of the way they started to bring these things inside the temple. If you look at the context of Deuteronomy, Chapter 14, and you can maybe just mark that, 20 through 29. It kind of talks about this, that they are to give a tithe. They're supposed to bring a tenth of everything with them. And if the journey is too far, which praise the Lord for how practical scripture is. It says if the journey is too far, they can bring a tenth as some kind of form of money and they're going to exchange it. It says in Deuteronomy 14, 24, and if the distance is so great for you, that you are not able to bring the tithe that is a tenth, since the place where Yahweh your God chooses to set his name is too far away, which clearly that becomes Jerusalem. Then, verse 25, you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which Yahweh your God chooses. And you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, oxen, sheep, wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. There shall be, you shall eat in the presence of Yahweh your God and be glad you and your household and kind of goes on to talk about don't neglect the priest and the Levites. They don't have a portion. So you are to give them part of your portion. Just as a note, um, that's an Old Testament concept that's actually built into their economy. So I think when you look at New Testament principles of giving, you give as a cheerful giver. I don't think you're required to give a certain percentage. This is what they were supposed to give to provide for the, the Levites. And maybe it's a good percentage, maybe it's not, but I don't think it's meant to be a minimum or a maximum. It's just the way their system worked in their theocracy But this isn't the problem. The problem isn't bringing money to Jerusalem. The problem isn't that they're going to exchange the money. And it's actually a good thing. And they're meant to exchange the money so that they can go off for sacrifice. 
And so nothing about this in the actual content of exchanging, selling, sheeps, doves, pigeons, doves, none of it's necessarily bad on its own. It's the issue of where they're doing it. It's the fact that in verse 14, he found those things in the temple. That's what is going to equal verse 15 when he is going to get this cord and he's going to say, not in my father's house. This is a misguided practice at best. I even wonder, because you see in the modern church today, this idea of, and I've been involved in meetings and you want to make things convenient. And I imagine they thought, well, this is convenience. It isn't here where Jesus says that they're robbers. There's another account of a cleansing of the temple. I take them as two distinct accounts, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end, which I think fits perfectly as he's dealing with how do you come to God? You come to God in a traditional sense here through the temple, right? Through offering sacrifice. Jesus is saying, no, it's going to not only be purified, but then of course he's going to purify it. And then ultimately it's going to change. It's going to be through him. So there's one at the beginning of the ministry. There's one at the end of his ministry where he's going to do very similar things. At the end of his ministry, it's very clear there that the main issue is even more than they're just doing it there, but they're actually robbing people. And I imagine there's some of that going on at this point as well. They're, they're upselling, they're, they're, they're creating uh, exchange rates and, and cheating people. And there's greed involved and all those things I'm sure are going on here as well. And so he says later in Matthew 21, gives an account, John only gives this one, but it's written, my house shall not be called a, or shall be called a house of prayer. His concern is similar, that it would be worshipful, not simply a place where making it a robber's den. But in this case, it's not so much even robbing that he's worried about. He's saying it shouldn't be here at all. Don't make it a place of trade. Verse 15, you're gonna see he's gonna make a scourge of cords, which is this idea of a whip, and he's gonna drive all of them out of the temple. I don't know if the sheep would be hard, but I imagine the oxen, you think, what's the whip for? Well, I can imagine it's to drive even the animals out and push everyone to say, this doesn't belong here. And then he pours out the coins and the money changers, overturns their tables. And those who are selling doves, he says, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. So I imagine, I guess that maybe those are in a cage. And he's saying, grab the cages and go. Just as a side note, I've actually owned pigeons and it's not a good idea to have them inside at all. Um, I imagine this is making a complete mess and I'm imagining the smell is not super wonderful, even a culture that would be used to a lot of smells. But he wants to say, take these things away. And his main point here isn't just that you're robbing them. It just shouldn't be going on at all. Stop making my father's house a place of business. They've turned something that's meant to be worship into something as common as a transaction. It's mechanical. And I'd say in particular here, it starts to become a means to a cultural end. This is what your grandparents did, your parents did. And I think you see that even within broader Christianity, especially mainline denominations, where it just becomes something that hey, we've always done and there's no questions asked whether this is right, whether this is biblical, whether this is worshipful. They don't ask those questions. They simply start to look at it independent of scripture and they start doing things that they just kind of, let's make this easier. Let's make this more practical. Let's get more people in faster and more people out. I like to be respectful of people's time. I'm probably not going to preach till one o'clock today and you'll probably thank me for that. 
but we can't let that be the priority. And it's okay. And I'm thankful if you show me grace and I go five minutes over or five minutes short. But this is worship. The goal, the priority is not to make the temple as convenient as possible. And the goal, of course, is not to make church as convenient as possible. I just imagine them taking surveys. And what would you like to see in the temple next year? Just human nature. I just imagine they did. And they said, well, we'd like to make it more convenient to get in and get out. Let's move these things here and move things there. The problem is, through those decisions, they make the temple about something less than the worship of God. It's okay if worship costs you something. In fact, I think of the nature of love. If I do something for my wife and it's something that I really want to do, if I buy something or let's just say I paint my office, which I work in every day, she's probably like, well, thank you for doing that. But if I do something that I don't want to do, that's for her, that I get no benefit about, out of, I imagine you go, wow, that love cost you something a little bit more. It was hard and you appreciate that love a little bit more. I think of David when he is offered free land to worship on. And it's kind of in the context here is, is post his sin. And he's to offer a sacrifice. He's offered free land, but he won't take it. And he says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And the reason he's saying, I'm going to buy it from you, this, this king who offers this land, because he says, I will not offer burnt offering to the Lord, my God, that costs me nothing. One of the ways it becomes common is this movement towards it has to be so convenient because we have other priorities, Sunday morning, etc., than worshiping the Lord. We need to be focused in that this is why we are here. And so even there, they remember from Psalm 69.9, verse 17, that his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That is talking of David and of course Jesus being the greater David, their expectation that the messianic line comes through David, the one who will come, who will sit on his throne forever. And he sees it and he says, worship is not simply a means. It's not just here to fill Sunday morning or or to kind of create community. It is here to worship God. Think about worship as we understand it this morning. We we now be looking, at least I'm not looking to sell you any oxen or pigeons or sheep. Not looking to exchange any of your money. But you think of the principle of how do you make worship common? And there's a temptation to make church more about convenience than about worship. We should strive that when we come, Sunday morning is not a box that we check. It's not just pack you in for an hour and get you out. We're actually trying to do something. We're trying not only to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but we're also hopefully going to encourage you as you not only worship in song, but you worship in the word and you worship as you fellowship together. It's about worshiping the living God. Convenience is okay. I'm sure you appreciate that there's chairs and you're not standing, on, sitting on the floor. Convenience is okay, but it's not the focus The focus is what has God and his word prioritized as the focus. One of the reasons that the word is preached and that you go, well, a lot of your service is the preaching of the word. Well, because we believe and we're convicted that that is biblical. Don't neglect the preaching. The focus of worship can never be 
replaced. Even if it's a little inconvenient, it's a little bit hard. Even if every sermon isn't the greatest, best, most impactful sermon, if it causes you to worship, it accomplishes the end of which it's meant to be. Which is we see here Christ and we see what he has done and who he is and we worship. And that is not just simply a means to get something for us, but it is a means in, it is an end in and of itself. So Jesus saying reorients them in this way. And as we read this, as inspired by the spirit, that worship is meant to be an end in itself. But it's also, as we'll see here, as we go on in verse 18 and verse 19, that worship is about submitting to truth and not seeking. And you might insert here, as I thought about this, seeking more signs because he gives signs. It's kind of the point is, is he gives signs. It's those who want more signs and more signs. And no, there is truth that we are called to submit to. We don't keep looking around. We actually know things. One of the best things about understanding, I think, a biblical view of decision-making, not to get on a hobby horse, but it is to say, we know so much that the scripture tells us to do. I wonder what the will of God is. Well, you can look and you can see all these things that God commands us to do. And if you have a little bit of time left over with a gray area where I think we are called to be responsible and wise in the way we honor the Lord and make decisions, which I think can honor him, But honestly, you get busy with doing what the scripture tells us to do. And I'm guessing you'll find less gray area and you'll be so busy, you'll be at baying and looking for ways to worship and serve him that you don't have much time for the indecision. We like kind of the indecision, right? We can stay there and we end up kind of doing nothing. But no, we got to submit to what we know and what is clear and true. And Lord, even I think as we move in that direction, that's partially how he guides us in our decision-making. But in verse 18... We're going to see that they come up with this question of not, maybe Jesus is right. Maybe he did something that was good. But rather, they want to know, you bug us. How can you have the authority to do this? Not whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but they ask him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And what I find so interesting about this, as I said, because John is so conceptually built as a book around signs. There's a question of is the number of signs and six or seven. And I feel like it's debated a lot over the walking on the water, not to bore you with all the kind of internal debates. I don't know if it means or matters that much, but a lot of people want to say there's seven because seven's the number of perfection. And this would be the argument that the seventh sign isn't given here but it's pointed to. And it's the conclusion of the book because he's going to say an answer in one way, I'm not going to give you a sign. And you can think of other places, Matthew 12, where an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. And I think even there, it's interesting that they eagerly are seeking. They want more, they want more. And he's not saying so much here that I'm not going to give you. It's just, you've had this truth. You're not submitting to it. I am going to give you one in the future. And he kind of speaks so in a way that is a little clandestine, a little bit vague, but very clear as the disciples look backwards or as John explains here. Because his answer of what sign, and he says, this is the sign as it were, verse 19, right? Destroy this sanctuary and in three days I will raise it up. Well, just like Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can you be born again? The woman at the well. 
This is living water you'll never have to drink again. How is that possible? Well, how can you destroy the sanctuary? They're thinking of the sanctuary here, the temple. How can you do that? And in three days, raise it up. And that's their expression. Verse 20, it took 46 years. And likely this meeting is that 46 years ago, it began being kind of updated, repaired the, the uh, Herod's temple here. Actually continue to work on it for a number of years forward. But the point is, this took 46 years to get where we are. Look at it. And you're going to do it in three days? Well, they missed the point. And John makes that explicit in verse 21. The point is he's speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And you don't need to do some kind of spiritualizing of the text or something too crazy here to bounce around because we're already talking about, he wants the connection to be made of the temple and the sanctuary and his body. What is the sanctuary? What is the temple? It's the means. It's, it's the place where you meet God. He's saying, if you destroy not the temple, he's talking of his body. If you destroy my body, and that is we're talking crucifixion, in three days I will raise it up. And he is going to be replacing, as it were, this is now the place where you go to meet God, be reconciled to him. It's going to be through not only Jesus, but he's particularly saying through his death, the destruction of his body. And so that's what the disciples see in verse 22. They understand that. But highlighting this point in verse 18 and 19, that worship is about submitting to truth, not signs. I like how one preacher put it this way, that quote, they don't need more signs to prove what's true. They need hearts to love what they know is true. It kind of sneaks into the last part of our thing here is he's not entrusting himself because he knows the hearts of men. And they are interesting here because this is the misdirection. Verse 18, they're trying to turn a problem, which would seem of idolatry, of turning the house of the Lord into something other than it's not. They're worshiping or, they're, or maybe it's, it's kind of that greed, a place of business. So they're turning a problem of greed and idolatry and they're kind of trying to turn it around and go, it's a problem of knowledge. We don't know enough. We don't have enough. So you need to give us more signs, more knowledge. How often we're guilty of the same thing not submitting to the truth that we know or dealing with what has been pointed out, which is, look, this isn't worshipful at all. And I don't think it would have been hard for them to put two and two together when you look at all that's going on in this place. I think they and the people have some sense and they're actually really not even, I think the, the criticism is more towards the leadership here. I think you go, yeah, it would probably be better and more worshipful if we got rid of all of these things, but they want to turn it. They want to miss kind of, direct it to somewhere else. I think it's a huge temptation to do that. Rather than submit to the truth that we know is true, we're looking for something more or we're looking to shift blame. And in that way, you go all the way back to the garden where Satan kind of goes to Eve and says, has the Lord really said? Maybe you misunderstood him. There's a misdirection and we tend to not deal with what we know is true, but we want to point to someone else's issues or I did this because you did that. See it in marriages. It's very easy. Someone, if your spouse points out something and you can go, instead of answering, you misdirect and go, well, what about you? What about what you've done? 
It's a huge temptation, even in the church. I'm just discontent with the church and I'm not getting enough out of it personally. People come, people go, and you kind of look and say, well, I understand no church is perfect. And if you go, the preaching could be better, I'd go, oh, yeah, I probably. But the point is, there's something bigger, right? You're here to worship. It's not just about you getting, right? The point of worship is you giving, even if it's inconvenient. I can't help but I said, look at 17 and their question and see that deflection because it kind of shows their heart, right? The heart of the matter, which is going to be picked up on 23, 24, 25, and then flow into Nicodemus who needs a new one, which is going to be the Old Testament language of regeneration. Why, when we are confronted with sin, in this case, they're confronted with the sin of taking the Lord's house and not making it about worship and making it about business. When they're confronted with that sin, why do they redirect? Because they have a heart problem. Why do we deflect, shift blame? Because it's a heart issue. Worship is meant to be focused on submitting to what we know is true, not trying to deflect and shift blame. It's not a problem of knowledge. It's going to be a problem of worship. And that's what Jesus really highlights here in his answer, that it's a problem not of knowledge, but a problem of worship. They don't need another sign. They need to believe what they have seen. And of course, what they will see in three years' time as he's sacrificed on the Passover. And so worship is not a means but an end. Worship is about submitting to truth, not seeking signs. And kind of lastly, as it flows into the last few verses here in Jesus' answer, worship is going to be reoriented to focus on a person and not a place. He's going to reorient worship to be not here in Jerusalem. And this isn't just this here, right? You know anything about the woman at the well? The issue is where can you worship? Can the Samaritans have their own temple? Or do they have to go to Jerusalem? Jesus gives the classic answer here of which there's more in it than at first glance. Think of John chapter 4, verse 21, which we're going to be in a few weeks. If you want to flip there, you can. But Jesus says to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. Why? Because the king is here, the Messiah is here. And the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. That is, it's coming through them. It's a Jewish Messiah, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. Worship is going to be through him, not through this place. It's not going to be through multiple sacrifices, but it's going to be through the one and final sacrifice, as Hebrew says, that's been offered once and for all. And the focus will go from that temple, which is where they met God, to meeting God and being reconciled to him through Christ. He's speaking, verse 21, of his sanctuary of his body. And so, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? They go, this is connection. The Spirit brings them to the memory, uh, the memory of what they were taught, and they remember this moment. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This all starts to play into, I think, their belief. They're starting to understand. It's interesting that you have them remembering in that first section, 
They remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. And they remember here back post-resurrection that Jesus was talking about his body. And therefore they see the sign, which is interesting, right? And that's kind of where I go, it's not that a sign is bad. It's just that the sign is going to be his death and his resurrection. And they see that and they believe what? They believe Jesus is telling the truth, yes. But because all of scripture is going to be kind of directing them towards the Messiah, it's even phrased that when they believe Jesus, they're believing all of the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They don't need more signs. They don't need more revelation. They go, we remembered, we believed all that scripture said and the word which Jesus has spoken. So there's a question of belief, 23, 24, 25. What kind of belief? Because obviously they believe, but Jesus isn't entrusting himself. There's lots of people that are going to follow John 6. Many are going to fall away. I can tell you for sure in 22, the belief of the disciples, that is a saving faith because they see the sign, they see the death and the resurrection of Christ and they believe that is true saving faith. They believe the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Then you go on to verse 23 and what we kind of see here is, I'd even say is somewhat of a transition from this issue of what's happened at Passover, the issue of worship in the temple. And it's going to say we have a heart issue Why? Because Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. So what's the solution? And that is going to flow into chapter three and it's going to give the solution and it's going to be fun to look at that next week. But just to kind of, I think, to see the way this somewhat concludes and then transitions, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Now they're not believing in the sign yet of his death and resurrection because that hasn't happened yet, but they're starting to believe that this is the Messiah. And they saw the signs, his signs, which he was doing. That is his miracles. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, that he doesn't need anyone to tell him, hey, watch out. Men will betray you. Men will lie to you. He doesn't need to know. He knows that. For he himself knew what was in man is a subtle way of saying he's omniscient and there's only one who's omniscient and it's God. Jesus is God. He knows that many are following just because they see these outward signs. They're getting more and more, but do they want to confront? Do they want their sin confronted? Do they want to trust? Are they truly believing? And of course, we know just as close as John 6, you're going to see many that are going to walk away. Why? Because that heart that is in each one of us has a tendency to worship what we should not. It's the kind of idea of idolatry. You're, you're putting something in place of God and you're giving it your worship. You're saying it's worthy of ultimate meaning, value, worth. Every person, verse 23, 25, has a heart issue. And the heart issue is that we want to put worship, the focus on something other than Jesus. And this is the reminder in this whole section that it has to be on him. He's the only one that is worthy of it. And if you do anything else, it ends up being idolatry. And so you need to focus on him and worship of him, not simply just a place or a event, as good as it might be. This has to be about Christ and Christ alone. And so you see the way that Christ reorients worship here, not simply a means, but it's the end. It's about submitting to truth, not seeking signs. And it's about being focused on Christ himself 
no longer on where they go to temple, but you meet God, you are reconciled to him through Christ. Unless you wonder too, and think of the, the Jews who asked the question, obviously he knows their hearts. The point is he knows the disciples' hearts. And he knows your heart, every single heart. And you might be able to deflect the conversations you have with people or with a pastor and those things and kind of go, I don't want to get after my issues or my worship issues. He knows because he's omniscient. He knows every single heart, which by the way, is both terrifying and wonderful. Terrifying because he knows everything about you. The things that you go, if the church knew or my friends knew, they would no longer be friends with me. Say, if they knew that about me, they would get rid of me tomorrow. Jesus knows that. And yet he's saying that he is never going to leave or forsake you because it's not about what you have done, but what Christ has done, that he bore your sin on the cross, that he was raised again. That's a wonderful thing, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, even though he knows everything about you. Because why? Not because how wonderful you are, but because of how wonderful Christ is, because of who he is, what he has done. Where's your heart this morning as we examine ourselves? Where's your heart Monday through Saturday? Because it matters just as much. My prayer is that you look at this whole concept of making worship common. You evaluate ways, ways that you go, you know what? I approach Sunday morning too casually. I approach the word too casually. Maybe it's just simply a box to check. Something that you're just doing to say, what do I get out of it? And I want to encourage you to say, Be careful. The warning here is it's not about you. It's about worship. Think about how Jesus goes from judgment here. I leave this as a bit of a comforting note. He goes from judgment, cleansing the temple to providing a way of worship through his death and resurrection. And so if you have submitted to the truth of the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ that He died for sin to make a way for you to be reconciled to God through faith. And I pray you have. And I hope you look at this text. I hope the Spirit illuminates your heart that shows you that the priority in the believer's life has to be, not just Sunday morning, although especially Sunday morning, you think about it, this is where we gather to worship. But as you come to Christ, because you don't have to come Sunday morning to come to Christ, right? He is now that place. He is that person. But that you'd see the priority in not just Sunday morning worship, but in your life as a spiritual act of worship, as the priority being, how are you worshiping Christ? Not just today, but every day, every moment from this point on. Let's pray. Father, we look to you and we see the glories of Christ as as John is laying out. We see he has every right and every authority to cleanse the temple. They have made what was meant to be a place of worship, a place to come to be reconciled to you. And they have made it simply a house of business. And may we just learn from that, even by implication of the dangers within our own hearts and our own lives and the days that we live. And even as we look towards the gathering of of your church, that we would not treat coming to you through Christ now, for it is through him that we come to you, we are reconciled to you. I wouldn't treat it as something common and something casual. 
but with the reverence and the worship that it deserves. Lord, as we look forward to all that you have prepared for us, even this week, the good works that we are meant to walk in, as Ephesians says, Lord, help us to be reminded that even worship is not just here through the preaching, through the singing, but it's out there in the world as we do those things, as we evangelize the lost, as we serve one another, as we grow in the grace and knowledge and as we look to you, we look to your word. May we be encouraged that there is still work to do and that there are still worshipers that need to come to you. And so in that way of thinking of evangelism as more worshipers, that's what we desire. More that come to submit to that truth that deny themselves by the power of your spirit are born again, as we'll see next week. Lord, until that time, let us just be reminded of the tasks that we still have that remains unfinished till all those who are yours come to you and you've gathered them into yourself. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.